Welcome to The Root of the Matter, brought to you by UPL. This is our second podcast, today focusing on agricultural markets with a well-known and well-respected commodities economist. This is one of many podcasts to come, so look forward to more episodes discussing pressing agriculture topics and make sure to subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to so that from now on you're notified when there's a new episode. I'm your host, Ken Root. Spring is coming to the continent, the south is planting, the delta is blooming, the midwest is budding, and the frozen north is thawing. Our U.S. Department of Agriculture released its planting intentions on March 31, and I refer to that as the Old Farmer's Almanac of Crop Reports, as everybody wants to read it and speculate about it, but few believe it. We'll see if our guest agrees. He is Arlen Suderman, the Chief Commodities Economist with Stonex, and I assume, Arlen, that's a new and much more catchy name for the old Intel FC Stone. Is that right? It, it really is. Uh, we don't have to go through uh, a spelling exercise to say our name anymore. Uh, we're a much more diversified and larger company than what we were a few years back, uh, a global company now in the financial services industry, and uh, it's a catchier name that helps better define who we are and what we do. That's great, and I'm glad you're moving on up. You're from Kansas, south-central Kansas, as I remember, and you've seen agriculture from quite a few vantage points beginning on the farm you grew up on, right? Yeah, absolutely. Grew up on the farm, was an agronomist in, early in my career uh, in, in an area that uh, grows a lot of corn, soybeans, wheat, uh, grain sorghum, and even cotton. So a very diversified area with a, a strong livestock presence as well. And that gave me a solid base for what I do today. Uh, my heart is uh, still on the farm, and it's my goal to do what I can to uh, help agriculture, uh, to provide assistance to agriculture and perspective with the markets uh, that will help it uh, be profitable. Well, let's talk about where we are now and what you think lies ahead but to uh, set the stage for this, we have had a most unusual year. I don't think anybody doubts that beginning in March of last year and proceeding till now um, has been strange. But it's hard to take it apart and determine you know, what happened and what that will change in the present and the future. But looking back at it, Arlen, what do you think was the area that really in agriculture was impacted most by COVID-19? Yeah, I would say there's a couple of areas. Obviously, the vegetable industry was was hurt, uh, particularly in the way of workers and being able to get adequate workers and keep them safe for the harvesting of vegetables. But probably the most significantly impacted was the meat sector. As, as we ran into problems at the processing plants, uh, with workers getting COVID. Now, whether they got COVID at the plant or at home or carpooling to work, you know, that's still a subject of debate. But the bottom line is we had workers at processing plants uh, with COVID. And so there was a call to shut down plants by communities, by health officials, etc. And so that backed up a system that's very much a just-in-time system. Animals are raised by the producers, get to a set weight for harvesting, move through the meat chain and processing chain into the retail sector, and you back things up, you create a lot of problems. And that's exactly what happened. 
we saw a, a number of processing plants shut down. They were able to adopt processes within their plants that would help protect workers and bring the workers back once again and reopen and get capacity going back up again. Uh, but we've never been able to quite same level of capacity. Uh, the beef industry is a good example of this, where it seems like we're having trouble getting over 120 to 122,000 cattle processed in a day. Um, and we need to be higher than that right now. So the only way to add more is to add more plants and or more days of work. We're already at about 5.7 days per week of work and taking more overtime to do that. So costs go up, but uh, that's the only way to add capacity. So product demand is very strong from the consumer right now, um, but we have a limited ability to meet that demand and uh, because of some of these limitations still in place. Arlen, tell me, though, does it seem like that it was a fair year for the producer who, through no fault of their own, sent their milk and their meat and their vegetables into a system that was having problems, but yet it appears to me that the people who have benefited the most of this short supply to the consumer have been those who process and sell. Yeah, when we look at estimated packer margins for, for cattle, they've been strong, uh, anywhere from 300 to $500 and higher is what's estimated in the industry uh, per head. Uh, at times, they've been large in the pork industry as well, but uh, are certainly much lower than that now. Um, as, as you look at the various places and stages along the process, it appears that the producer uh, like typical is the one who uh, just kind of pulls along at maybe narrow margins, sometimes negative, sometimes positive. Uh, some retailers have done very well if they've been able to adapt to these new ways of selling to the consumer with curbside service, etc. But um, uh, the producer, it seems like, always ends up with just kind of break-even margin and stuff. Although with, with higher grain prices for the grain producer and we're still making enough of a margin in these livestock operations to be able to pay for these higher grain prices, so that's a big positive. I wonder if there's anything from this COVID period that we changed that we won't change back that actually will be with us from this point forward. Anything that crosses your mind? One of the positives that I take from it is actually from the consumer side. We had, going into the COVID lockdowns, we thought meat demand is in trouble because historically meat consumed through restaurants and food services than we do through the home consumption. And that's because at a restaurant, the restaurant will generally serve a larger portion and if the consumer doesn't finish it, it goes back to the kitchen. Maybe you take a doggy bag home, but most of the time it goes back to the kitchen and is thrown away. At home, that extra leftover might be put back in the fridge and brought out the next day. But what we found was a pleasant surprise. The consumer spent the past year educating herself or himself on different meat cuts and how to prepare them. And we've actually seen an increase in consumer demand for meat and poultry. Some studies say as much as an 11% increase because they have done this. And now as food services and restaurants open up, we're seeing that demand get even stronger. So that is a 
trend that we think will be with us for many years, and some say maybe even generations, that we have a newly educated consumer on the value of meat, the different cuts of meat, and how to prepare them, and taking a liking to the meat. And, and that's very positive for the producer, the meat producer, and the feed grain producer. Well, I'd like to correct just one area that you had, and that is about the food going into the refrigerator and coming back out the next day. Uh, in my house, it comes out the next day. If we don't eat it, it comes out the next day, and then it comes out the next day, and it's up to me to get rid of it or it's going to show up again. So that's why I've gained a little weight during the COVID period. Yeah, I've gained some weight during the COVID period as well. Uh, you know, I, I had trouble social distancing from the refrigerator. <laughs> yeah, I relate to that. Hey, let's turn to uh, state of the country and the continent, North America, Canada, U.S., Mexico, primarily Canada, U.S., on where we are right now as far as the potential for us to have crops this year and have prices that are above the cost of production. Setting here in uh, mid-April, what does it look like to you? Well, it looks positive. Uh, of course, I tend to look at the. I tend to be a person that sees the glass is half full. I'm very optimistic about agriculture. Sometimes we have to work harder to get those returns than others, but I do see a lot of opportunities. I want to start with the oil seeds. Um, that's we've got a lot of most attention here of late, particularly soybeans, because we have a very tight balance sheet for soybeans, but more specifically, soy oil. When we look at what's happening around the world, we see a move toward green energy, and that is causing many governments to push for more biodiesel. And um, soy oil tends to be one of the primary components of that, along with canola oil. And when we look at now the new renewable diesels, we're seeing a much stronger demand for these. They have a lot more flexibility where they're used. One of the biggest demand sectors is from the aircraft industry. So basically, we have processors that are saying they've got demand for as much as they can produce. We've got two new plants opening up in the United States. We also have some other plants opening up in other places of the world. I'm talking about just this spring, many plants under construction or in the planting stages. And so this move toward making fuel from the edible oils is very strong. And it doesn't have quite as much political opposition as what something like ethanol does. Uh, not as many people worried about using food to make fuel on the vegetable oil side of things. And when we look at the vegetable oils or the edible oil supplies in the world, they are very tight, depending on which one you're looking at. Some are the tightest of the modern era in terms of as a percent of usage. And so we're anticipating that these vegetable oils or these edible oils are going to be in very tight supply for the next five, six, seven, eight years um, based on the current plant constructions and plans. That's going to help support the oilseed industry going forward. We also have a rebuilding hog herd in China that's demanding a lot more soybeans. That has hit some serious hiccups here in recent months with a return of African swine fever. So that's creating some problems for demand for soybean meal right now in China. We're cautiously optimistic that China is going to get a handle on that this year and that we will see a resurgence of that demand once again. But oil seeds are the tightest. Then we look at the feed grains with what we already said about livestock demand being strong, meat demand, meat consumption being strong. We see continued growth for the feed grains. 
uh, specifically for corn. A lot more corn going to China, but also non-China business has been very strong as well then that means that we're feeding more wheat around the world. Now, as we look at the U.S. northern plains and much of the plains and then into the Canadian prairies, we grow a lot of good milling wheat, good quality milling wheat. And so we're seeing that in higher demand in China. We're seeing some concerns about uh, coming crop in Russia. looks better than what it did a few months ago. Um, They still have a long ways to go. But overall, we're seeing more demand also for feeding hard red wheat in the United States and elsewhere. In fact, around globally, we're seeing a sharp increase in feed consumption of wheat because of the high price of corn. So that's helping elevate all the major crops right now. Um, So a lot of opportunities going forward. Unfortunately, that means higher input costs. We've certainly seen an explosion of fertilizer prices. And uh, particularly with some plants in the United States shutting down during the February cold wave that we had, they could make more money selling the natural gas that they were using to make fertilizer for other purposes. And so they shut down and created a tightness right ahead of the planting season and really helped elevate prices. But prices of inputs tend to go up anyway, unfortunately, whenever crop prices do. So... We still have to watch those input prices, but the opportunities certainly appear to be there. And if we have any type of adverse weather in any of the world's major producing areas in the coming year, we could have even more explosive prices. You know, I don't know if we as non-economists in this world realize how interconnected everything is, but when you start swinging around the globe and you talk about where supply is and where demand is and what's changing. It becomes very, very interrelated. One other area I'd ask you before we move into this crop report is about South America. How have they done on their production, which is half a year off of us, uh, on getting their corn, soybeans, and other crops out and into the world market? That's received a lot of attention this year, and I'll start with Brazil. Um, Brazil's soybean belt saw one of the the core, the growing season, was one of the driest it's had for the last 40 years. And that had a lot of people seeing bullish signs, and soybean prices were already high enough, but they thought, well, it's going to go even higher. But what they forgot was that Brazil receives two to three times the amount of rainfall in a normal season than what it needs to produce a crop. So half of normal rainfall is still enough to raise a crop. And so we basically saw Brazil produce a crop of 134 million metric tons, or probably a little bit more than that, uh, which is almost a normal crop, maybe down just a, a little bit from what we would expect based on the area that was planted. So very, very little adverse effect from that, except for in some locations and other locations were above trend to kind of balance it out. Now, as we go into the safrina corn planting season, or the second corn crop, in other words, they harvest the soybeans and plant corn right behind it, that's a little bit more challenging because now we're getting into the reproductive phase of that corn crop currently at a time when their rainy season tends to end, and so they don't have as much rain. So a 50% of normal rainfall at this time of year 
isn't enough for the corn crop. And so there's a lot more risks with the corn right now. And what we have found is when Brazil has a short safrina corn crop, which is most of the corn production, we tend to see a big increase in North American corn exports about six months later. And uh, so that's what we're watching very closely right now, particularly with stocks already starting to get very snug. What people don't tend to realize, if you take the world corn balance sheet and you subtract China off of it uh, and you subtract the United States, the rest of the world's supplies are basically a 35-day supply, which is the tightest that we've had in the last 20 years. There's not a lot of margin for error there. So if we have a short crop in Brazil, that's a concern. Argentina, right below Brazil on the map, has had a dry growing season as well, but it's been this cycle of periods of dry and then timely rains, dry and then timely rains. So we are looking for below-trend yields for both corn and soybeans. The harvest is just very early in the process right now. We're not looking for a tremendously short crop, but it'll be shorter than what we'd like, and that further tightens the world supplies up a little bit more. Overall, I think South America has gotten by better than what was feared, but the Safrina corn crop still has the potential to really see some significant reductions in production here over the next few weeks if the rains shut off now as they typically do right at this time of year. I've been to Brazil several different times beginning back in 1983 when they were just converting the uh, areas of the Cerrados uh, into uh, soybean land. And they always talk about this rain and how that it is crucial to them because they have a wet season and a dry season in most of that area. You have to go quite a way south to simulate our part of the world uh, where it's seasonal. The rest of it, you only have hot and dry and hot and wet. Those are your two seasons. And how much moisture they have is what they live and die by. I guess we're all in that same shape. Let me turn to this uh, USDA Prospective Plantings Report, which has got a little age on it right now, but no verification as of yet. Do you have a reaction to my comment that it's like the old Farmer's Almanac, that everybody wants to read it, but nobody really believes it? I, I I do, and uh, I hear tremendous amount of criticism of uh, USDA surveys. I've been a critic of them as well, but I would still say they're one of the best in the world. I, I'd say really between the United States and Canada um, that we have some systems in place that are envied by much of the rest of the world. So while I'm a critic of it, I also don't want to see it go away, as many people have advocated. I think they do tell us a lot more than what we would ordinarily otherwise know. If it if they did go away, uh, industries like Stonex, like I, who I work for, we would do our own surveys, we would do our own information, and it would be proprietary um, just for our customers and clients. And so I think it's good to have the public information and good to have the public debate. Now, the numbers were surprising to me. They were surprising to most in the industry because at the time of the survey, which was either side of March 1st, prices were high, providing all the incentive in the world for farmers to plant fence row to fence row, as we would say. In other words, as many acres as what they could. If you look at year-ago numbers, uh, the number of acres – 
that could not be planted, we call them prevent plant because of adverse weather, was about 8 million. And those were highly concentrated in the northern plains. Uh, there was another 2.5 million acres or so that came out of Conservation Reserve Program contracts and were available this year, again, heavily focused on the U.S. plains. So that gives another 10-plus million acres, almost 11 million acres that were available this year that were not planted last year. But yet the USDA survey showed that only about six principal crops were only going up about 6 million acres. So what happened to the other 4 million-plus acres? Very possibly they'll show up in the June 30th report when USDA will survey farmers again. How many acres did you plant or do you pl still plan on planting? Maybe they'll show up again in, in that report. But for now, the acres that USDA provided us on March 31 is what USDA will implement into its new crop balance sheets on May the 12th when it issues its uh, next WASD report, crop report, and again in June. So this is what the market will trade. And so the market's job between now really over the next 45 days is to try to stimulate as much production as possible to try to increase those acreage numbers ahead of the next survey. Well, I look at this corn planted area, and it seems remarkable to me that Iowa would be 3% less than a year ago, and Illinois would drop its acreage by 4% all the way across the Corn Belt. Everybody says they're going down on acres of corn. You know, Arlen, farmers love to grow corn. Given a choice over corn and soybeans, most would rather grow corn, and yet the numbers went down. Uh, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense if the incentive is there. Um, I just want to throw this March 31 report out, but I suppose... I agree with you. It's better than nothing, but it just seems to be out of step with the reality of a farmer and a banker's thinking when you got higher prices. More than four decades ago, I had a professor in college who told me that uh, every farmer loves to grow corn, and the only farmers who don't grow corn are those who can't because of climate or soil type. And so given the choice, they want to stand beside a tall field of corn. And so I know that um, there was a lot of talk about a shift from corn to soybeans, but it's not that we shifted from corn to soybeans so much as we were disappointing on both, on both sides of the equation here. I talked to uh, another broadcaster as the survey was being completed, and he had uh, been facilitating a meeting with about 250 large uh, producers from across the U.S. Midwest, and he asked them to raise their hand if they planned on changing their crop rotations this year. And only a handful of hands went up in that large room. Um, and, and that was as I would have expected. What we anticipated was a, f a few corn-on-corn -corn acres might switch to soybeans, but most of them were going to stay within their rotation, going to stick with the crops that they had on hand, but we would see the biggest growth in acres being in the plains and across the south. And we did see that, particularly in the northern plains, a lot of those prevent plant acres coming back. We saw a lot of growth of corn and soybean acres, as well as wheat acres in the south. Uh, a little bit of reduction in cotton in that area, but overall nationally cotton acres are pretty similar to a year ago. 
but there's just some things that did not add up in this survey that led to a lot of questions being asked. Well, survey is the key, and until we get into, what is it, the August crop report, we really don't start measuring. We're still doing interviews with farmers. Is that July or August when that happens, Arlen? The uh, USDA employees actually go out in the fields starting in September. Now, farmers start certifying the acres that they planted sometime in July. Those certifications need to be processed, and the first of the processed acre numbers start coming out in August. Those are probably the least accurate initially, but by the time we get to October, we start to have a pretty good handle on what the farmer is reporting as what he actually planted. And so until October, we're really not going to have a lot of confidence in these uh, acreage numbers. In many places, after they've already harvested it, before you have any confidence in it at all. Let me move on here. Soybean numbers obviously up somewhat to give you some balance of farmers not telling you something that's totally untrue. Could I go back to winter wheat that we're getting ready to harvest in some of the southern areas? And whether you're getting any input that the extremely cold spell hurt that? or whether we're on track for a decent harvest on winter wheat this year? Yeah, I I was an agronomist before I was a market analyst. I was a certified crop advisor in the state of Kansas, the wheat state of Kansas. And so I've walked hundreds, if not thousands, of wheat fields. And uh, I know what the textbook says about what temperatures it takes to to damage wheat in the wintertime. I've seen many times when uh, wheat did not read the textbook, either it was damaged when it shouldn't have been or was not damaged when it should have been. And I always say wheat will make a liar out of anybody. This was one of those years. The one thing I would say is the cold weather outbreak that we had in February was the most severe that I've seen in 40 years as far as what the wheat had to go through, particularly in the state of Kansas where there was very little snow cover. Temperatures dropped into deep cold temperatures rarely seen in the state of Kansas and for an extended period of time with wind as well. So the conditions suggested we should have had significant loss of wheat. But even at the time, I said, we simply won't know because with wheat, it's hard to tell until it breaks dormancy. Well, now we know we did have some more significant damage in eastern Colorado. We had spotted damage in Kansas. But for the most part, we came out of that uh, cold wave in February a much better shape than what I feared. And, And that's a good positive. We also then had some very good rains during the month of March. And that helped heal the crop as well. And so uh, right now we're looking at some good yield potential in the central plains, which was an area that was most concerned about. We do have a lot of dry areas, particularly in West Texas, the western half, the two-thirds of Oklahoma, some areas still of southwest Kansas, and then up in in Nebraska uh, and the Dakotas, The past six to seven months have been the driest on record for the Dakotas. And that's an area we need to keep an eye on uh, because we'll be soon coming up here in the weeks ahead on the deadlines for planting hard red spring wheat in that area. And if it remains dry, as some forecasters think, we could see a lot of those hard red spring wheat acres then go into soybeans. Uh, where they can wait a little longer for the rains to come 
before they plant. Uh, and then we've got dryness uh, that's been very dry right up into the Canadian prairies as well. So I think that's one of the key stories to watch for wheat going forward is when that weather turns around and if it turns around for the northern U.S. plains and the Canadian prairies. Let me skip down to the south and ask you in general about cotton. Are we above the cost of production on cotton right now in general? And do you think that we have have a capability here of uh, uh, people planting the acreage they say they're going to plant? Yeah, I think so. Uh, Two months ago, uh, as I talked to our cotton team, um, it was our mutual feeling that we would probably lose a million acres of cotton this year to other crops. Uh, And then the prices rallied hard. They've pulled back some from those highs. Uh, but uh, we brought some of those acres back into cotton production once again, and uh, we've made very few changes in acreage. I think they'll get planted. We do have concerns about dryness in the state of Texas, which I mentioned with the wheat as well, um, that Texas is dry. Uh, some of that's irrigated, but much of it is not, and that could be a real problem going forward for cotton. Arlen Suderman's my guest. He is the uh, Stonex chief commodities economist, 40 years of experience. I can't believe you've had that much, but I've had 46, and I guess I've known you a lot of the time I've been in this business. And I look at things and I think, well, we have another year, and I can't believe farmers can continue to have a good attitude about things when they have the volatility they have, and in some cases the unfairness that they see in the way pricing is. But I'm getting indications that farmers' attitudes this year are good, Uh, Not that a farmer's attitude isn't always good in the spring, but what do you think of what you're hearing on farmers' attitudes going into the season? Uh, The farmer is is generally an optimistic person. That's what gets him through the adversity. Um, And so the farmer tends to see the glass half full. But I I do see that there's a renewed optimism here. There had been a lot of discouragement a year ago. Uh, particularly during the COVID shutdowns and the unknowns, and, and even before that, in the U.S. farmer with the with the with the trade battle that we had with China, there is a renewed optimism now. First of all, we have strong demand, and that is always good. Even if you have big supplies, if you got the demand, it always still feels better. But now we also have an in, injection of a lot of fiscal and, and monetary stimulus that is making its way into the markets and amplifying the market response to that demand, giving us higher prices and, and better opportunities ahead, we hope. And it, it certainly has that feel to it. So there's a lot of optimism out there. And you can see that in equipment sales. The farmer is more confident, so he's uh, buying more equipment. We're seeing new green paint on the farm. Uh, equipment dealer sales or data is showing that, and that's reflective of the optimism out in the country. Could I ask you if you could generally talk about rice? Any observations of basically the same questions as cotton on uh, is it above the cost of production and will acres hold? With rice, when we look at the acres, we're going to have roughly around 2.7 million in the United States this year. It looks like we're going to that's going to be adequate to keep our supplies snug over the coming year and help to hold prices somewhat elevated give us the return over cost that we need. And so some fairly decent fundamentals over the coming year are seen for rice. Obviously, if we'd have a short crop that could give us higher prices, an abnormally large crop could start to build those supplies. But if you look at trend yields 
It looks like the acreage that we have is probably all we're going to get, but we should get that, but it'll be enough to, to really kind of keep the supplies snug and the prices elevated and supported. Arlen, it's always wonderful to hear your perspective on things, but to bring this to a close for farmers, are you expecting a lot of volatility in the grain and livestock markets as we move through this uh, growing season this year? I am expecting a lot of volatility. I think volatility is with us to stay. I mentioned um, the increased um, fiscal and monetary stimulus that's gone out into the economy. United States alone is over $4 trillion over the last year and rapidly rising right now with the current administration that we have. And we have found through surveys that a lot of that money is making it directly into the markets either through retail investors directly or through investment in funds that invest into the markets. The markets are very money-rich, speculative money-rich, and you add to that that the CME group increased position limits for the agricultural commodities, particularly the grain and oil seeds, uh, depending on the commodity, anywhere from 60 to 80% larger position limits for these speculative traders. So we anticipate that means higher highs and lower lows and a lot more price swings of and particularly since a lot of most of that money, the majority of that money is traded by computers now that read momentum signals and pile on so to speak. And so that means when we're going down, momentum's going down, they'll pile on lots of money to send it lower and the opposite is true when it's going higher. So that means very volatile markets are likely there to be for a while. You need to have a plan in place to remove some of the emotions so that you're ready to act when the markets do move or you could quickly miss out. Arlen Suderman, who is the uh, Stonex Chief Commodities Economist, always great to talk to you, and I, uh, I know it's going to be a fun year to watch. Uh, hopefully um, it'll be good for all concerned. We'll have to see how it finishes up. We'll talk to you again. Thank you very much. How can people get in touch with you or with your company? Uh, they can find us at stonex.com, or they can follow me at Twitter. My handle is Arlen, A-R-L-A-N-F-F-101. Arlen, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. That's Arlen Suderman, who's the Chief Commodities Economist for Stonex. This podcast was brought to you by UPL. It's one of many podcasts to come. Look forward to more episodes discussing pressing agricultural topics and make sure to subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to so from now on you're notified when there's a new episode. Thanks for listening to The Root of the Matter. I'm Ken Root.